Good morning, church. We are continuing our series in Philippians, and we've been going through this letter looking at um, joy and unity and godly ambition or godly striving. And so we're asking how we as a church can be united in striving for joy um, together. Um, so we're in the second half of Paul's letter, uh, and last Last, uh, last week, we looked at the first half of, of chapter 3, where Paul sort of finishes by saying that he wants to gain Christ and know him and the power of his resurrection and to become like him. And so we pick up here in um, chapter 3, verse 12. So he says, I wanted to gain Christ. And now he says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross as Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, as we look at this, we're going to consider three things. Thinking maturely, walking as enemies, and standing firm. So thinking maturely, walking as enemies, and standing firm. So Paul, in, in this first part, he, he gives us a picture of what it means to, to think maturely, right? He ends by saying, let those of us who are mature think this way. And, and this is what he's, he's communicated to us. You have a goal you need to seize. You have a goal you need to seize. That's mature thinking. So let's let's pause for a second. What what is what does mature mean? Um, so the word for mature that Paul is using, I'm gonna you know let's geek out a little. Look at the Greek. This is Philippians is one of these letters where the, where if you look at the the Greek words that Paul is using, it it really helps understand like the connections that he's making. So the the Greek word for mature here is teleoi. Okay, why am I telling you that? Because it, it's related to, to the Greek word telos. And telos it, is very important. It sh it's, it's a word that shows up all over the Bible. And it's the end. It's the purpose that something was made for. It's the, the, the chief end, the goal of you know, something's existence. Um, so actually, sometimes other translations will translate this word mature to mean perfect. So Paul says, let those of us who are perfect 
think this way. You might say, wow, perfect and mature are, are rarely used as synonyms in English. What, what's going on there? Well, you know, actually, interestingly, in the very beginning of our, of our passage, you remember he says, not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect. It's, it's basically the same word. It's, you know, related to teleoi, um, to telos. So Paul is saying, we have a goal, we have a telos that we're made for. And he says, I haven't already obtained that, the ultimate purpose that I've been made for. But as Christians on this side of the resurrection, um, on this side of Jesus' return, um, we can obtain, we can begin to think in accordance with what we're supposed to be as Christians. Um, so to be mature is to to have to to not be childish, to not be um, sort of on the road, but to have to to be thinking as a Christian the way that you're supposed to. Um, so he says, right, you have a goal you need to seize. And so you know we can see that too. Right? Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, right? What was this? It's gaining Christ, knowing him, the power of his resurrection, becoming like him. He says, I haven't already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own. So again, those are related. He's saying, I haven't already seized this, but I press on because I want to completely seize it. I haven't seized it, but my goal in life is to completely, totally seize Gaining Christ, knowing him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death and in his suffering. And he says, why? Because Christ Jesus has completely seized me. Right? Where, we, where I read, made me his own. Jesus has completely seized me, completely laid hold of me, completely made me his. But he says, so that's what I'm doing. I'm straining to completely take hold of Jesus. I haven't done it yet. And that's important. He says, I haven't done it yet. Right? He says twice, not that I have already obtained this. He says, I do not consider that I have completely seized it. I haven't made it my own. And first off, this is an incredible <laughs> encouragement to us, right? Because Paul, right, of all people in history, had this single-minded focus once he became a Christian, this single-minded focus on living for Jesus, right? And he, right, was constantly in prayer, constantly, right, hearing from God, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He did amazing things. He was, you know, he, he, he was taken up into heaven in a vision, like, probably multiple times. But he says, I haven't obtained this yet. And the good word for us, friends, is if, if Paul can say that he did not obtain this. You're, you know, you're not going to either. We're not going to either. But we shouldn't expect, we shouldn't get discouraged when we don't. And of course, because the thing is, like, if you're a Christian for any amount of time, you're going to struggle. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to say, I know that I should be obtaining more than I'm experiencing now. And that's true. And you're right. And when Jesus returns, we're going to have so much more of God than we have now. And we should strive for that, but we shouldn't be discouraged when we don't seize it and lay hold of it. When the full resurrection power of Jesus isn't daily, moment by moment, uh, seen in our lives. 
So he says, not yet. But then he says, but one thing. So it says, but one thing I do. But that's just translate. It's He's kind of like, a, I don't know, if you remember City Slickers, you know, Curly, he said, one thing. Right? He says, but one thing. That's all he said. One thing. I press on toward the goal. And, he, and you know, in, in doing, he, he tells us two things. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Those are the two parts of, I press on to the goal. One thing. He says, I haven't obtained it, but one thing. I press on toward the goal. And the picture there is it's like he's got a mark and he's looking through a scope and he's just fixed on that mark. And he's like, that's my goal in life. Like scope-like focus on the prize of having as much of Jesus in his life, the power of the resurrection, not just at the resurrection, but daily in his life. So he says he does two things. Forget what lies behind and press and straining forward. Now, what is what is he forgetting? Because Paul isn't forgetting everything, right? I mean, he's just... Just before this, earlier in this chapter, he's made a long list of his characteristics and qualifications um, that he had before he became a Christian. Um, so he, he hasn't forgotten those. And Paul never forgot. One thing we know, he never forgot. He never forgot that he persecuted the church. Right? Even as he's writing to Timothy at the end of his life, he says, I am the, the foremost of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. So what does it mean that he forgets what lies behind? So earlier in this chapter, Paul says he made the list of all the things that, that he said. These were assets, right? Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee, full of zeal. And he says that I, I, I had considered them assets. Now, you know, if you know even just a little bit of, of accounting, right? An asset, right, that's something of value. That's something that's bringing cash resources into the firm, into the company, into the enterprise, right? So he says, I thought they were of value. He said, but now that I'm a Christian, I've moved them to the liability side, right? And liabilities, those are things you owe. They're taking value out, right? That's like, I got to pay my credit card. I got to pay my mortgage. I got to pay. I got to pay. Because of this thing, I got to pay. And Paul said, I thought they were assets, but no, they're not adding value. They're subtracting value. I'm taking it because if I'm tempted to boast in them at all, they're going to take away from what I have in Christ. So he said, I'm forgetting them. I'm not thinking of them as anything that I'm tempted to boast in. I'm moving to the liability side. That's what he said. I'm forgetting that. I'm not going to boast in anything I used to boast in. But he also looks at his liabilities. And they're not liabilities anymore. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean, because he looks at, he used to persecute the church. And it, and let me just to clarify, like, that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. And if Paul suddenly had changed his mind and started persecuting the church again, like, that would be a bad thing. But Paul looks at that, and now he doesn't, he doesn't his persecution of the church doesn't mean that God could never love him. And it doesn't mean that he's forever forsaken. But he says, I look at that and now I know I'm saved by mercy and grace. There's nothing I did to deserve God's grace. There's nothing I did to deserve his mercy and forgiveness. He remembers it in as much as it points him to Jesus. 
So that's what he forgets what lies behind and he strains forward. He says, look, I've got a goal, which is Jesus. There was all this stuff that used to take away from Jesus. I just want to be focused, scope like focus on Jesus. And so then he said, right? So he says, that's one thing. And then he does this amazing thing. He says, so imitate me, imitate me. I mean, can you imagine, right? Paul, in earlier in Philippians 2, Paul says, imitate Jesus, right? We want to have the mind of Christ. And so he describes Jesus. He says, be like Jesus. And here Paul is saying, if you want to know how to do this, look at my example and imitate me. And I mean, that's just amazing, right? Like it's such a challenge. It should be a, a hard challenge for us because we should, we should be living our lives so scope-like focus on Jesus that if, we have our, that if our children want to know who is Jesus, who is God, what does it mean to live for him, that we could say to them, imitate me. We say to, that we could say to our kids, not, we wouldn't say, do as I say, not as I do, but that we would say, you want to know the kindness of Jesus? Imitate me. You want to know the patience of Jesus? Imitate me. You want to know the love and the joy and the self-control, the humble self-denying service towards others of Jesus? Imitate me. That's how we ought to be living. So he says, imitate me. But he also says, let those of us who are mature, those of us who are living as Christians, right? Like this is what it's... This is the purpose God has saved us to think this way. Let's think this way. Um, but then he says, and if in anything you think otherwise. So he's saying there, there's some of you who are Christians, but you're not, you don't realize that life is about striving and suffering for Jesus. He said they're Christians, right? The, the, the non-Christians, he's dealt with them earlier, the dogs, the, the mutilators of the flesh, right? The evildoers. He's saying they're Christians, they're Christians, but they're not living in accordance with their telos, the aim, the goal, what they're supposed to be. He said, there's other Christians who they see the certainty of Jesus has seized me, has made me his. And they say, well, I'm going to hit cruise control. I can just lean back, saved. So there's nothing for me to do. Paul says, look, the mature way of thinking is Jesus has completely seen me. I have complete assurance and certainty. And so that moves me to action. But he said, there's some of you who think otherwise. You don't realize it yet. You're not mature, perfect Christians. Remember, perfect doesn't mean sinless perfection, moral perfection. It means living like a Christian. The design for a Christian is to be on this pursuit. But he says, God will reveal it to you. And I, I want, like, if you're wondering, like, oh, what, you know, what is Paul getting at? What does reveal mean? The word reveal is apocalypsi. Now you might say, wait, apocalypse, that's like end times, right? Well, we use it that way in English because the revelation of John, right, the last book in the Bible the revelation is the apocalypse, but it means the revealing, right? The, it's, the picture is, it's like pulling back the curtain to see what's ultimately, fundamentally, really true 
And that's what John is doing in the Revelation. He's pulling back the curtain for us to see ultimate, real, spiritual reality. Paul is saying, if you are not living your life, striving and suffering, forgetting what lies behind, but working hard to gain Christ in his fullness, if you're not doing that, at some point God is going to pull back the curtain and you are going to see the ultimate reality you are missing. So, that's thinking maturely. So, second, walking as enemies. So, what's the threat to living this way? So now Paul goes on, he, he describes people, and he's in tears, right? He, these are, I think these are Christians who, and maybe they think they're still Christians, but they're not walking uh, as allies of the cross. He says they're walking as enemies of the cross. So here's, here's the description. We're going to look at the description of them, and then, we're gonna, um, and then we'll see what it means, right? We're going to let the Bible tell us here. Um, and just, you know, a warning, when we, when we see what Paul is getting at, Paul's going to hit a third rail. You know, Paul is, Paul is about to touch something that, that's supercharged and, it, and it's going to lead to controversy. And I'm going to be uncomfortable having to preach it. But this, we're going to see what Paul is getting at. Okay, so, so what does it mean to walk as an enemy of the cross? Because presumably we don't want to. So what does it mean? So he says, the people who are walking as enemies of the cross, he says, their end is destruction, right? And, and I don't think he's saying anything deep there, because apart from a savior, your end is destruction. Paul, apart from Jesus, destruction. Me, apart from Jesus, destruction. So he's saying, look, they're walking as enemies of the cross. They don't have a savior. And then he says, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So instead of minds set, on Jesus. They're set on earthly things. And then he's got, right, this two picture. Their God is their belly, they glory in their shame. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, think of, let's think about the image, right? The, your belly, right? Your stomach. Uh, it's, it's when, when you're hungry, when you need food, your stomach, your belly growls at you. It says, I need food, right? And it, and it starts to control your body. Um, and, you know, and, uh, but, but it could also be, right, you see something delicious, right, and you just want it. It's not like you need it and you're at risk of being hangry, right? Um, it's just you just want it. And so, right, the belly is, is an appetite, right? It's either like a need appetite or a perceived need, right? Um, or it's a, like, I want that. And so your God is your belly is to say there's appetites, and you just are ruled by them, right? So he's saying these people who walk as enemies, they're ruled by their appetites. Um, but, you know, the thing, like animals are ruled by their appetites, right? Like they're hungry, so they kill. Um, they're in heat, so, you know, they do their thing. Like animals are driven by appetite. But humans, we can rise above our appetite, um, right? That's almost, I mean, that's one of the things that makes us human is we can fast for days, um, we can say, no, I don't need ice cream, chocolate cake, whatever it is, right? Um, but he's saying they, these people, their God is their belly. They live for their appetites, okay? And then he says they glory in their shame. And uh, what that means is their value, identity, their self-worth is found in things that they should be ashamed of, right? They should be ashamed of the things that they're like, yes, this is who I am. 
So that's the picture. There's people who they, they live for their appetite and then they, as a result, they're like, this is who I am and I, I'm, I find worth and value in this thing. And Paul says they should be ashamed of it actually. Now, what is, what is, so in general, this is a great picture of sin, right? I'm sure as I've been describing it, there's things that have popped to mind. You're like, oh, it sounds like this or that. Um, but there's something in particular that I think Paul has in mind. Um, because the next thing he says, right? So then he gives us a contrast, right? So the contrast is going to help us like fill in more of the picture. He says, um, so in contrast to these people who are driven by appetite, who glory in shame, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, right? I mean, that's think about it. He's describing people like driven by appetite. And then he brings in this concept of, of citizenship. He says, but... Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. So listen to the listen to the contrast. Right? He's brought in citizenship, which is a different image. So he says, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And you know, the Philippians, Philippi was a Roman colony, so they would be citizens, and it would be a thing to be proud of, and, and rightfully proud. Like there's nothing wrong with being proud of, of your national identity, right? But Paul is saying, our ultimate allegiance our ultimate political affiliation is heaven their ultimate citizenship is is on earth from we await a heavenly savior right so in contrast they're looking for an earthly savior and uh, and our savior is going to transform us to be like him he's glorious and we want to be like him right jesus their earthly savior, not necessarily. We don't necessarily want to be transformed to be like our earthly savior, that right? Um, and then notice he says, how, how does Jesus transform us? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So Paul has brought in, right, to, to contrast, right, to help us understand who are the enemies of the cross. He's brought in this picture of citizenship and power subjecting things to himself i think the particular thing paul has in mind the people who are walking as the enemies across their appetite their glory is for political power right i mean look that's that's the description he gives us they their desire is for political power and he says they're walking as enemies of the cross now, why would that be? Well, in the first century, there were uh, very strong political aspirations to be free of Rome, to be free of these, you know, these oppressors, right? People who were making life horrible. And so uh, you saw this in, when Jesus was going around doing things. People thought, he's the king. He's going to reclaim Israel. He's going to bring back the kingdom. And then, but instead he goes the way of the cross, Right, which is letting his political opponents apparently triumph over him. And at the cross, people scatter and they abandon him because they say, he's, we thought he was going to deliver to us the kingdom, and he's not. The cross in that setting made no sense. right? And so the people who are enemies of the cross, they, they want an earthly savior to get a political victory, to subject their political enemies to themselves, to himself, right? That's what they want. And he says, if you 
are desiring an earthly savior, you're walking as enemies of the cross. And Paul says this in tears because they probably don't realize they're doing this. So, how do we apply this to today? Well, let me tell you that I, as I've been preparing this sermon all week, two weeks, this is the part where I'm like, I, I, I don't, I'm very nervous to do it. Um, let me, let me give you a picture. In, uh, in Lord of the Rings, there's this thing called a, a palantir, right? It's like a crystal ball that you can look at Sauron. It's kind of like you get to FaceTime with Satan, basically, is what happens. And at one point, Pippin, one of the hobbits, looks at it, and afterwards, he just falls on the floor cowering, and he's like, I saw him! And he's just, like, in shock, because it was so horrible. Um, so, uh, I'm not really on social media. I don't have... Twitter account or anything like that. But once in a while, I'll go and be like, what's happening on, on the internet? And the other day I did that. And afterwards, I was like Pippin rolling on the floor because I couldn't I couldn't unsee what I had seen. I couldn't believe the vitriol and the anger and the uh, just the extreme views that are in our country um, because our, our country is so, so polarized. It's as polarized as it's ever been. Um, and that's, that's a fact. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, this is just me personally, it, it just burdens me so much. And, um, and so, so now I, you know, I have to, we have to talk about, right, the, the, this ungodly desire for political power in such a politically charged age. Now, why, why is our country so polarized? Well, it's, it's because politics, power it's, it's one of maybe the major idol of our age. Um, so to give you a picture, um, a few years ago, you know, it was a midterm election and, and some of my colleagues said, hey, we're going to go to a, a bar or something and watch the election results come in. And they said, who wants to watch history be made? And, uh, you know, the thing is, the uh, it was a midterm election, not a presidential election, okay? So it wasn't you know, it's less important. And nobody was predicting like a major historic shift. It was sort of like a normal midterm election. And so I was like very confused by who wants to watch history be made. I was like, not, history is not going to be made. And and watching election results, it's like somebody like counting up the, the, the points to a game after the game has been played. Like you're not even watching the game. Um, but I realized if politics is your religion, then an election is like Easter. It's like, this is the holiday. Like, hey, maybe our maybe our cause will be resurrected again. Um, and so for them, like, it's a big deal. Um, so, you know, that election, politics is, a, is like a major idol. It, it's what we believe is going to save us, a lot of us. Um, and politics is also, you might, so you might say, that's interesting, you know, your colleagues outside of the church. But one of them, if you look at the reasons that kids leave the church, one of the major reasons um, that people will say is it's politics. Um, because people look at the church and they say it's just a front for some political party, right? The, the political allegiances are, are so entwined with, you know, the religious, with the religion, that 
kids growing up and they, they reject their parents' politics and with it, they reject the church because they say these two things are just inextricably linked. I, I'm, I'm rejecting the politics. I'm rejecting it all. Um, and this has become more of a problem in recent decades, not less. Um, you know, it's all, Chris has done church history classes for us and he'll tell you the church is always in the most danger when it is the closest to political power, right? Whether you go to Constantine or, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, or whatever it is, like, that's when it's the most dangerous is when we're getting close to power, when we're seeking power. Now, how do we as Christians not walk as enemies of the cross? How do we, how do we make sure that we are not lusting for power, that we're not driven by this appetite for power? And, and notice this appetite for power is something we should be ashamed of. So how do we, how do we live as citizens of heaven, not ultimately as citizens of whatever country we're citizens of? Right? There's nothing wrong with, with national pride, but it can't be ultimate. So let me, let me, let me give you just a few suggestions. Um, first, um, because this is such a major problem for our society, we should assume that it's a problem for us too. Right? We, we breathe in the air around us. Uh, we drink the water that we're swimming in. We're, right? we're just surrounded by it. So we should assume that it's a problem for us. Because uh, kind of like every other social problem that's outside of the church is inside the church too. Okay, so this we should assume this one's true also. So let me give you just a few, a few suggestions. One is um, we should, when we look at whatever party that we affiliate with, um, and it's fine to have a, a party that you most closely align with, but we should, when we look at our political party, we shouldn't just see flaws. There shouldn't just be areas where we like disagree, right? And and of course, like you realize, like we should have disagreements with our party because Jesus didn't come to baptize a particular political um, conglomeration of views that would emerge two thousand years later, right? Whether it's right or left, like we're not in perfect alignment with the kingdom of God now, right? So, but we shouldn't just see like flaws, we should see idols. Because, um, right, we're still in a sinful fallen world. We should see idols in our party, and they should distress us. Now, you know, you might, you still, like, you have to choose at the end of the day, if you're going to participate in politics, do you vote with this um, political platform with its idols, or this political platform with its idols? But either way, You've got to be aware of the idols. The day you don't see idols anymore is the day that you are glorying in shame and your, your God is your belly, okay? So um, recognize your idols. And one way to, to help you do that is you should listen to Christians across the aisle. What's amazing, it, I mean, it's, it's kind of really amazing to me, is that there are Christians all across the political spectrum theologically orthodox, right? Or like, like people who are theologically evangelical Christians who are, you know, on the right and on the left. And I know, you know, if you're on the left, you think the right is crazy. If you on the right, you think the left is crazy. If you're in the middle, you think both are crazy. Um, but uh, we have brothers and sisters 
across the spectrum. And so we should listen to their perspective. They can help us see what's wrong, what's idolatrous with you know, the side that we're on, and they should also help us see what we can affirm about the other side, okay? And if there are real God-fearing Christians across the political spectrum, that should change our perspective, okay? So that's that's what we should do. And, and, and we need to keep in mind, right, the cross is the way of weakness, submission, humility, right? It's, it's humble, self-denying sacrifice for others. That's been the theme in Philippians for the last few weeks. Um, our approach to politics should also be humble, self-denying service towards others, not as Jesus will do for all his enemies, subject all things to himself. Okay, Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, not to a political party, not to a political cause that we are hoping will subject our enemies to you know, our desires. Okay, so we've looked at thinking maturely, right? You have a goal you need to seize, walking as enemies, right? The great threat of desiring political power. So finally, standing firm, okay? How do we stand firm, right? Paul finishes by saying, stand firm thus in Christ. Well, let me, let me, let's look at why, why would we desire political power? What's the promise of political power? I think it's two main things. It's comfort and control, right? We want our team to win because then we'll have comfort and then we'll have control, right? The world won't be happening in a way that threatens us and it won't be happening in a way that we don't like. That's the control we want. So how do we stand firm against this temptation and instead live for Jesus, walk as allies of the cross? Um, well, remember, here's another. Uh, in Joshua 5, Joshua is getting ready to enter in the promised land. He meets a, a pre-incarnate Jesus and he asks him, he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And Jesus says, no. He says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army, right? And now listen, right? Joshua asked him, are you for us or for them? Because those are the two options. And he says, no, wrong question. The question, and like the point is like, he's about to go and fight for Israel. Um, but the point is not what side is God on? The point is, are you on God's side? Right? So how do we stand firm? Well, if you want comfort, there's a... There's a catechism question, right? And it, and it says, what is your one hope or what is your one comfort in life and death? And the answer is, my one comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong to God. I belong to Jesus, right? And Paul has told us, right? He says, I do this. I, I, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. He is definitively, completely, totally seized me. I belong to him because of his work for me on the cross. I belong to him. There's nothing that can change that. If you want comfort, if you want to know life or death, no matter what happens, I am loved. I am, I am cared for. I am preserved. I will be kept. There is no greater comfort than to know that you belong to Jesus because of his work for you. But second, if you want control, that same Jesus, he has the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Because when he went to the cross, 
It looked like his po political enemies were victorious over him. It looked like his spiritual enemies were victorious over him. But he went to the cross and he disarmed Satan. He disarmed sin and death. He destroyed the power of evil. And he has put sin and death under his feet. As Christians, we, we have enemies. We look at injustice and we want it to end. We look at rampant poverty and we want it to end. We look at the killing of the unborn. We look at the killing of black men and women and we want it to end. And we look at, at people on the other side of the aisle and we say, they're making things worse. We have political and We don't have political enemies. We have enemies. But they are the powers, the principalities, the rulers of the air. Our enemy is Satan. And it is that is the enemy that Jesus at the cross has disarmed and put under his feet. You want control? You will not have any more control in life than Jesus has over all of evil. And he will, when he returns, definitively destroy. All injustice, gone. All evil, gone. All tears, wiped away. Jesus and Jesus alone has done it. He subjects all things to himself. And Paul tells us if we belong to him, we will rule with him for eternity. If you want comfort and control, you need to live for Jesus. Single-minded scope, living for him completely in living for his righteousness, living for his holiness, humble, self-denying service to others, following in the way of the cross. That is thinking maturely. That is mature thinking. If you want comfort and control, that is the only thing you can do is live for Jesus because he has made you his. He has definitively done it. Amen.